Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh! There it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. On December 6th, 1989, a man entered the engineering building of Montreal's École Polytechnique and murdered 14 women. The incident sent shockwaves through Quebec and changed the country's entire view on firearms and violence against women. Today's episode takes us to Montreal, Canada, to the École Polytechnique. Have you ever heard of the Polytechnique massacre, Amy? Uh, no, I don't think I have. It's more commonly referred to as the Montreal massacre, hmm. so maybe that's why. Well, you know, we tend to know a lot of the ones that happened here in the United States, but this is out of country for us. But this is a crazy incident. And while all the episodes we cover are tough, I think this one is particularly so. But one of the reasons I picked it was because it has such overarching consequences, both on a political level and a social one. And as we're going to discuss later, it's still bringing up deep and valuable conversations in recent years. All right. Let's first dig into the school itself. And since this happened in 1989, I want to talk a little bit as well about the social atmosphere of the time period as well. Originally known as the School of Applied Sciences in Art and History, I'm not even going to attempt that in French, just so you know. The school was founded in 1873 in order to provide skilled and educated engineers during the height of Canada's Industrial Revolution. It's considered the first Francophone engineering school in North America, and its name changed to the Polytechnique School in 1887 when it became part of the University Laval and is now a subsect of the University of Montreal. Today, the school attracts thousands of engineering hopefuls, and since its inception, the school has graduated over 50,000 engineers, specialists, and researchers. Now, I couldn't find an exact date for when the school went co-ed, but as of 2022, they have already reached Canada's national goal to have a graduating class of 30% women in engineering. So I think it's safe to say that Polytechnique has, at least in the 20th and 21st century, been an advocate for women in STEM, STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math. At the time of the massacre, the school was already well known for attracting young women who wanted to work in engineering. And I think that's an important piece to stress here early on. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit just to set the stage for what was happening socially in 20th century Quebec, just to give us a better understanding of the culture before we move into the event. To start, while a province of Canada, Quebec is a little bit different than the rest of the country. One of the biggest differences being that for a long time, Quebec was run by the Catholic Church instead of a secular government. And based on the incredibly conservative policies put forward in the 20th century, many Quebecians lived in a state they called, quote, the Great Darkness in the 1930s and 40s. It was particularly difficult for women, minorities, and LGBTQ people to live under this kind of government. 
1960, Quebecians called for a separation of church and state and began electing more progressive officials. Quebec's history is much bigger and more complicated than we can really cover in this episode, but we can surmise that the Canadian province was going through some pretty drastic social change during the latter half of the 20th century, particularly in the way the provinces viewed women. And this social change led specifically to a large feminist movement around 1985. Hundreds of feminist groups lobbied for change across several platforms, including better rights for women with disabilities, same-sex marriage rights, legal and housing aid for victims of domestic violence, and the overturn of Canada's 1974 anti-abortion law. This sounds pretty similar to what was going on in the United States as far as women's rights. Yeah, I think so. I would agree. But the government there remained pretty inactive and in some cases even withdrew support from women's equality. So there was some opposition going on and it wasn't a very socially stable time. But as we talked about with the polytechnique, the universities at least had opened their arms to progression and to women breaking into these previously male-dominated fields. So even though this was a tumultuous time, there was also a lot of optimism about Quebec's social future. But on a cold winter afternoon, a horrific event would happen that would change the way Quebec looked at feminism forever. December 6th of 1989 was a day of happy, nervous energy on the Polytechnique campus. It was the last day of the semester and students were rushing to finish final papers, give their last presentations, and celebrate before leaving friends for the holiday. Uh, Best time of year, right? Exactly. But there was an individual on campus who was not participating in the end-of-campus proceedings. A young man by the name of Mark Lapine parked his rental car in a no-parking zone outside the Polytechnique building around 4.30 p.m., just one hour before the school officially closed for the break. He made his way up to the second floor and sat in one of the chairs outside the registrar's office. A female staff member asked if he needed help, but he sat in the chair rummaging through a plastic bag for several minutes, and he basically ignored her, so she just left him alone. After about 20 minutes, Lapine left the registrar's office following the long corridor to a classroom at the very end of the floor. And at 5.10, he randomly interrupted this packed classroom where mechanical engineering students were giving these final presentations. He strode to the front of the class, cutting off the presenter and ordering the men and women to divide themselves on opposite sides of the room. At first, no one moved, and some even laughed, thinking that this was kind of an end-of-the-semester prank. But Lapine pulled out a hunting rifle from his plastic bag and fired it into the ceiling. At that point, the students scattered, realizing very quickly that this was not a prank, and they followed his orders. Lapine corralled the nine women in the class to one side of the room. He demanded the rest of the class, which was made up of about 50 men and two male professors, to leave immediately. Based on later interviews, several of the men spoke about feeling conflicted leaving their female classmates, but they also didn't want to anger the gunman more by resisting, and so they vacated the room. Once alone with the nine women, one of them, a senior mechanical engineering major named Natalie Provost, spoke up and asked Lapine who he was. He answered, you're feminists and I'm fighting feminism. When Natalie argued that she and her fellow students were not feminists, they were simply learning engineering, Lapine responded by opening fire. From left to right, Amy, he killed Helene Colgan, Natalie Croteau, Barbara Denault, Anne-Marie LeMay, Sonia Pelletier, and Annie St. Arnaud, all senior engineering majors. He also fired on Natalie Provost, taking her down in the leg along with two of her friends, but they would survive. This is absolutely horrific that he just shot down all of these women. I cannot imagine what that scene must have been like. Yes, exactly. I mean, and meanwhile, the men the shooter had forced into the hallway 
had scattered and they'd heard the shots inside their classroom, running through the halls and alerting the other students. But like Lapine's entrance into their presentations, most of the students thought it was an end of the semester prank. Meanwhile, Lapine left the women bleeding in the classroom and went back down the corridor. He fired at three random female students in the hallway, wounding all of them before breaking into a second classroom where he tried to kill the lone female student in it. Did anyone try to stop him or everyone's just trying to take cover at this point? I think people were trying to take cover. And I think there were a lot of people who didn't know what was going on. Remember, they scattered, but no one was quite sure. Mm -hmm. So I think it was just panic mode. When he tried to kill this lone female student, his gun jammed. He ran into an emergency stairwell to clear the jam and reload his weapon. But this didn't deter him or slow him down as he immediately went back to that same classroom to finish off the woman he had just tried to kill. Luckily for her, the students of this classroom had locked the door as soon as Lapine left and he wasn't able to shoot the lock off. So some really quick, smart thinking there. But again, this didn't slow him down as he continued down the second floor corridor, wounding another woman before he arrived at financial services. The young secretary, Maurice Lajeunere, had seen him coming and slammed the door in his face, clicking the lock before he was able to accost her. But unfortunately, there was a large window right next to the door. Lapine shot her through the glass, killing her instantly. And Lapine, he wasn't finished, Amy, running down to the first floor cafeteria where over 100 students were eating dinner. I'm assuming no one heard the gunshots. I guess they didn't hear. Also, think about how loud cafeterias are as well. Um, Thinking about when, when you eat in the cafeteria with all the people talking and maybe not knowing what the noise was. Regardless, Lapine opened fire and the room scattered. A visiting female nursing student, Barbara Kluznik Videevich, had been eating at the cafeteria with her husband. As they tried to escape, Lapine killed Barbara before they reached the door. Her husband could only watch in horror as his wife fell. Lapine even went after two women who'd hid in a storage closet on the opposite end of the cafeteria, stalking them as they tried in vain to hide. He opened the unlocked door to find two best friends, Anne-Marie Edward and Genevieve Bergeron, holding each other. They pleaded with him, but he shot them both in the head. This is so sad. They died in each other's arms. This is so horrible. So, Megan, he's clearly only targeting females. Did he shoot at any males at all? He did shoot at some males, but this was way more focused on females. And I'm not sure if he shot at the males just because they were in the way or, uh, you, you know what I mean, like a reason that was kind of not the primary reason for the shooting. This is a female targeted shooting. When the rest of the students locked themselves in the kitchen, Lupine took an elevator up to the third floor and he shot three more students. Now, this is where he shot two males and one female. And this was in the corridor um, before diving into another random classroom. In this classroom, a woman in a fuzzy red sweater was at the front of the class in the middle of her final presentation. This is very interesting to me that people didn't hear the gunshots. You know, I wonder. Did he have a silencer or anything? That's a good question. He might have because I, I don't know how they weren't hearing. Especially the scream. You would think they would hear even the screams, though, even if there was a silencer. Right. I would have thought so. In this classroom, Lapine strode in and demanded again for the men to get out. Even as the men exited, Lapine turned on the female presenter, Maurice Leclerc, shooting her in the stomach before opening heavy fire on the first row. Materials engineering majors Maud Havernick, Michelle Richard, and Annie Turcotte fell to Lapine's bullets as they tried to escape after their male colleagues. Other students were hiding under their desks, and as Lapine surveyed the room, he heard a whimpering sound. Maurice Leclerc was lying on the floor, clutching her abdomen, calling, please help, please, in a thin, pained voice. Instead, Lapine pulled out a hunting knife, which was hanging from his belt, knelt down and stabbed her repeatedly in the chest until she lay quiet. This just took a whole nother turn. It's much more personal stabbing than shooting. Yes, it absolutely is. Good observation. 
According to the eyewitnesses hiding behind their desks, Lapine looked around, muttered, ah, shit, before taking off his windbreaker, wrapping it around his rifle and shooting himself in the head. What? Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily the most surprising, as we do know in the in the States, and a lot of mass shootings end in death by suicide by the shooter. I just would have expected it to be when the police arrived. And I wonder what he was saying, oh, shit about. Do you think he realized what he had done? Or maybe once he took the knife out, he thought it like went to another level. We could speculate all day what this comment was about. Or did he just realize this is the end? Uh, you know, this is it for me. So, Megan, I wasn't keeping count. He sounds like he shot many people. How many fatalities and how many injuries here? Yeah, the whole attack. This is a good point. The whole attack lasted 20 minutes. And by the time law enforcement arrived, Lapine had killed 14 women and wounded 14 other students, 10 women and four males. Wow. That's a lot of damage. And did he have a lot of rounds left? Like, could this have been even worse or did he run out of ammunition? That's why maybe he stopped. I'm not sure if he ran out of ammunition. Um, that, that part is definitely unclear here. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this could have been worse, but as is, it, it was a terrible mass shooting. And some people are left asking why. What was the motive here? Did he leave anything behind to explain motive? Yes, he did. Okay. As, for, as a good question. When first responders and investigators flooded the scene, a suicide note was found in Lapine's jacket pocket. While it wasn't released to the media at the time, about a year later, it was leaked to a reporter and published in its entirety in the newspaper. The whole note can be found online under Lapine's page on Murderpedia for anyone interested in reading the whole thing. I'm going to read just a short excerpt from it that very clearly captures what his motives were. I can I guess? He hated women. He felt rejected. Maybe he was an incel. Okay, here we go. I have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker, Feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women while seizing for themselves those of men. So the feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. They are so opportunistic, they neglect to profit from the knowledge accumulated by men through the ages. Hmm. So the motive here is clearly a man who does not respect women to the point where he'd rather kill them than to see them enrolled in engineering school. Hmm. Um, I think he just sees women as taking the opportunities that he had. And I'll explain why in a little bit. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Hey, listeners, have you heard of Mr. Ballin? He's a former U.S. Navy SEAL who started telling strange but true tales on YouTube back in 2020. And now he is a podcast that gets millions of downloads a month. It's called Mr. Ballin Podcast strange, dark, and mysterious stories. The world has changed a lot since Mr. Ballin began his storytelling adventure, but one thing that hasn't is the hold strange, dark, and mysterious stories have over us. And that's exactly what Mr. Ballin delivers on his podcast. Each week, he walks listeners just like yourself through a real-life story, a living nightmare ripped from the archives. Listen to the Amazon-exclusive Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. How did Mark Lapine get to this place? Let's look at his life. I think the background on him will answer the questions, the overarching questions of why. Mark Lapine was actually born Gamil Garby in October of 1964, and his formative years were during the tumultuous social changes going on in Quebec during the late 60s and early 70s, from that time I was discussing earlier. Since we've been calling Mark Lapine by his adult name so far, I'm going to stick with that and just call him Mark here. Even here, well, we're talking about his childhood, so it doesn't get super confusing. Mark's parents, a Canadian nurse, Monique Lapine, and a mutual fund salesman, Rashid Lias Garby, known as Lias, were an unlikely couple when they met in 1962. And Monique's family did not approve of Lias since they were a staunch Catholic family and Lias was a non-practicing Muslim from Algeria. But the two got married not long after meeting and Lias was a very successful businessman. Um, so much so that the family, which also included a younger daughter, Nadia, lived in Costa Rica for a while. 
Amy, Costa Rica, I know, one of your favorite places that you'd like to visit. The family also enjoyed just a lavish lifestyle in general with fancy cars, mansions, and elite parties. However, Lias was a womanizer who not only had several mistresses, but he was also known to sexually harass women he came across. Amy, it was reported that he'd rub his crotch on women at parties and social events, even in front of his wife. Okay, so I already see some uh, biological stuff going on here. So, Amy, I, I cover this in my course on serial killers. It's a paraphilia. Paraphilias are pathological and destructive sexual behaviors, so frauderism is one of them. Uh, Lias also ignored Monique in social settings, or worse, would interrupt and demean her in front of guests or friends if she started talking to anyone in his presence. Wow. Lias would also verbally berate Monique in front of his children, one time getting so mad because she served her children dinner before him. So mad that he threw the whole plate of food out the window into the snow before hitting her in the face repeatedly until she fled and hid in her basement. And this level of abuse was frequent. Wow. Okay, so we're starting to get a little bit of an understanding of where the gunman came from. Absolutely. Lias often beat his children as well, punishing them for any and all manner of simple things like if they didn't say good morning when they woke up or if they made a noise while he was in the room. In fact, when Mark was a child, Lias beat his four-year-old son so violently that his nose and ears would bleed and Mark had handprints on his face for over a week. Monique went on to say, that after these beatings, Lias would forbid her from comforting her children as he felt that would spoil them. Lias physically abused little Nadia as well. Things took an even worse turn after the family moved back to Montreal as the stock market crashed in 1968, taking with it most of Lias's mutual funds and the family's income. So this family went quickly from being wealthy and comfortable to having nothing. Elias's abuse and infidelities also became just too much for Monique to handle, and one night she took both of her children and escaped to her sister's house a few miles away. From what we know about Lias, I'm assuming this enraged him. Um, I'm hoping he didn't go looking for her, but I would bet he did. And that bet would be right. Um, Lias went and found her, and when he did, he beat her head against a brick wall until her sister and brother-in-law intervened and threw him out. Why is no one calling the police on this man? He's clearly very dangerous. Yeah, he is. This is also the 60s and 70s. So we know a lot about what happened here in the 60s and 70s, that these were handled as private matters, that police weren't always responsive. Um, but these are serious beatings that people have witnessed. So, I, I mean, I, I would agree Monique stayed with her sister for a while, but as we know, uh, what happens frequently in abusive relationships, and sadly, Lias promised Monique he would change, and he won her back after a few months. But as we also know in these relationships, what really happened was that his violence ramped back up only a few weeks after Monique moved back in with the children. And I can't imagine what kind of whiplash this is causing the, you know, causing the children either going from an abusive situation to some semblance of stability and then back to the abusive home again. Monique dealt with Lias's violence for a year before he beat young Mark so horrifically one night that she decided enough was enough. She filed for divorce. Lias's response to her serving him papers was to kick her and the children out of the house. Mark was seven at the time, and Nadia was four. So this poor woman, I can't imagine, standing on a stoop with a seven- and four-year-old, literally nothing to her name. She's much better off than being in that home, so. You know what? And she got back on her feet pretty quickly, going back to work as a nurse. Um, it wasn't really enough money, though, to support her children, so she made the difficult decision to go back to school to be able to get a higher degree to make more money. Now, because of how much work it would be to do full time and get another degree, Monique had to leave her children with family members during the week when they weren't in school. And she really would only see them on the weekends. And this was the way it went for several years. This is still a much better arrangement than living with the abusive father. Not ideal, but better. No, oh, absolutely. Um, but she would later say that she believed Mark was upset by this decision and he possibly felt abandoned because of the, the situation they had. 
Mark and Nadia were both described as emotionally stunted, and Monique enrolled the whole family in psychotherapy in 1975 to try and unravel the emotional damage caused by Lias's behavior. That's pretty progressive. Therapy in the 70s was not like it is today. Absolutely. But the results, unfortunately, were only slightly helpful. In 1976, Monique's hard work paid off as she became the nursing director of the Montreal Hospital and was able to move her now adolescent children into a nice middle class house in Montreal. So things seemed to be calming down for the family. Lias basically disappeared from their lives after the the divorce was finalized. Mark made new friends at middle school, uh, a good friend by the name of Jean Bellinger. They met on the first bus ride and became fast friends. As they hung out together, Jean only ever got glimpses of Mark's violent upbringing. And while he'd later say he knew that Mark wasn't a happy person, he also believed it was just because Mark was very quiet and very shy. When his friend often spoke of how much he hated his father and both didn't like sharing the man's name or getting picked on in school for having an Arab name, Gene encouraged him to simply change his name. And after some thought, young Gamille Garby settled on Mark Lapine so that he'd have a nice Quebecian first name and his mother's last name instead of his abusive father's. I can understand why he wanted to change his name. I don't fault him for that at all. Absolutely. From this time forward, he insisted on being called Mark. It didn't unsettle his mother and confuse his teachers, but it was his decision and what he felt comfortable with. So let's talk a little bit about his adolescence. He was an above average student in both middle and high school. He had, you know, his good friend, Gene, and later Gene's girlfriend would also join the group. But he had very few interactions with other kids. Once in high school, he became kind of the man of the house since his mother worked long hours and he was in charge of the home, cooking, cleaning, chores, babysitting. And unfortunately, he did not get along well with his sister. Nadia was reportedly everything Mark was not, and she knew exactly how to press all of his buttons to get him to explode. And unfortunately, Mark already had a short temper to begin with. As much as he could, he would stay at Gene's house where the boys would build electronic gadgets in the basement. He was really good at building things. This is where he began to feel like he wanted to pursue an education in engineering and a career. Okay. In the summer, Monique sent Mark off to his uncle's and the two often went hunting together. Yes, it's not doing other outdoor um, stuff. But these hunting expeditions also gave Mark a fascination with guns. So now we're, you know, it's almost like you can see everything building. He had a troubled childhood. He's angry. Now he has access to guns. So, And he became a little bit obsessed with military and war. In fact, when he was 17, he tried to join the Canadian forces. And this was in 1981. But after doing interviews with him, they rejected him, finding him unsuitable. And this devastated Mark. I think this is a situation where the military would have probably been a good, it would have been good for him. Like when you see, you know, life course theory and different trajectories, I think someone like him, obviously we we can never, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can never, there's nothing we could have done to prevent this from happening, but. It might have allowed him to filter his interest though into pro-social activities and events in a career. At this time, after he was rejected when he was 18, Monique moved the family closer to her work and to Mark's community college, where he decided to go and pursue a science degree. This move was really tough on Mark, even though he had school, he was away from his really his only friend, Gene, and he really struggled in his freshman year. He hadn't had to work very hard in his earlier education to get good grades, but college work stumped him, and he was pretty crushed when he failed his first two classes. And I think, Amy, we know uh, from our teaching experience that academics aside, a lot of shy loner kids tend to have a hard time their first semester at college. And not only was Mark a loner, but he was described as uncommunicative and showing little emotion. So I imagine it was pretty hard for him to make friends. It's sad. Yeah, he was also very awkward around women. It had been noted that he either tried to boss them around or kind of tried to one-up them with his knowledge, so I doubt that went over really well. He was also pretty vocal in his interactions with fellow students about his distrust of feminists and how he disapproved of women in traditionally male careers. I wonder why. His mother was a hard worker, so I understand 
why he would be maybe angry, a loner based on his upbringing. But his views towards women don't really make sense to me. Unless he's adopting the views towards women that, that his father held. There was conversations with other students where he, he was very heated about the fact that there were p- female police officers uh, and, and that he was tracking them and he hated the thought of them being in a male-dominated field. So it became a little obsessive here. Now, although he did better in his second semester, classes didn't seem to be going the way he wanted. And so he decided to leave community school and pursue an electronics degree from a three-year technical school. And while he was described as a model student by his professors, Mark inexplicably stopped attending classes just one semester before graduation in 1986. Very odd. A few months later, he applied a third time, this time at the École Polytechnique for Engineering. He was not accepted as he'd never officially finished his degree from the community college, and he was missing two classes that he'd have to take before being eligible. Mark was outraged by this. He left academics entirely, getting a job in the kitchen of his mother's hospital. I'm sure he was not happy with that. It's very different than where his path was going. No, he was building up in anger and rage. And it was becoming more clear that things were were really bad emotionally for Mark. His co-workers described him as hyperactive and in an effort to show off He would run carts of food too quickly and spill things or wash plates so fast that he broke them. He became a liability, so he was moved out into the cafeteria to serve food. Mm -hmm. However, puberty had also given him some very bad acne and apparently so bad that several hospital staff complained that he actually put them off their lunch because of the pustules on his face. Ooh. Yeah, this obviously made him very self-conscious and he got placed back in the kitchens in a menial role where he didn't really see anyone. So this change also upset him. He did move out at this time and got his own apartment. And by all accounts, he became even more isolated after this, staying in his one bedroom apartment after work, watching war documentaries and tinkering with his computer. This is clearly building up. Yeah, no, we definitely see the, the what happened here. After a few months of working in the kitchens, he decided to finish the community college and try to get into the polytechnique. He took out some government loans to take the required courses, and he did well on these courses, getting a 100 on his final exams. So Mark looked like he was starting to find himself on the surface. But in reality, he had been planning his massacre for some time. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Now, in between Mark's many starts and stops in his schooling, acquaintances had started noticing he'd become more and more vocal about his anti-feminist views, going so far at a high school reunion to say that he'd been fired by a woman and another woman took his place when someone asked him why he'd stopped working at the hospital. Now, this wasn't true. He left on his own accord. And based on his suicide note, Mark explained that his motivation for joining the Canadian forces was so he'd have access to firearms to begin ridding Canada of the feminists. Now, I, mm. now you can see why yep. he probably didn't make it. Yes. So, you know, as, back, as far back as his teenage years, he'd been contemplating a shooting of women in some fashion. In the summer of 1989, Mark applied for a firearms acquisition certificate to buy a semi-automatic rifle, explaining to the gun salesman that he wanted to shoot small game. By November, he'd been approved for the permit and purchased a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. Now, even though Mark was not yet officially a student at Polytechnique, he was seen over seven times, Amy, wandering the campus in November. Mm. So was this, you know, uh, him trying to get used to the campus because he was going to go there? Or was this more of a stakeout? In late November, he brought his mom a birthday gift, even though her birthday wasn't until late December. And on December 1st, he didn't bother to pay his rent, which was very Mm. unusual for him. Right. These are all signs of somebody who's planning to die by suicide. Exactly. And then on December 6th, just five days later, he'd murder 14 women in cold blood before turning the gun on himself. 
Now, Amy, the media's coverage of the massacre heavily downplayed the attack as gender-based violence. They framed it instead as a massacre by a madman. Like, you know, a madman went crazy with a gun. But I think that this also downplays the importance of the women that were slain on December 6th. Because as we've discussed, I don't think there's any doubt that he targeted these women simply for being successful women. So right here, I'd like to tell you about the victims, and this was not commonly reported on in the news. Helene Colgan was a 23-year-old mechanical engineering student. At the time of the massacre, she was in her final presentation before graduation. She had three job offers waiting for her after graduation, and she'd been leaning towards taking a position in Toronto, which would never happen, unfortunately, as she was the first to be gunned down by Lapine. Her best friend, Natalie Croteau, was also 23 and a major in mechanical engineering, and she was just three months away from completing her degree when Lapine fatally shot her alongside Helene. Natalie's father would later say, quote, she's only three months away from getting it and she's killed all because she was sitting in a chair in a classroom. Barbara Denault had followed in her father's footsteps to pursue a degree in engineering he was a professor at the University of Montreal, and while Barbara was at Polytechnique, she often acted as a teaching assistant for her father. At only 22, she was headed towards graduation and seeking job prospects when Lapine took her down as the third victim. Anne-Marie LeMay decided to pursue engineering when a grade school friend lost the use of his legs, and Anne-Marie realized the importance of medical devices. She'd hoped to pursue a career making these important items to help other people. Sonia Pelletier was the woman who won everything. From scholarships to awards to competitions, the 28-year-old was always at the top. The presentation course she was in when Lapine burst through the door was the last class she had to complete before getting her degree. She had a perfect 4.0 GPA and glowing prospects that would never be realized. Annie St. Arnaud was also attending her last class before graduation. The 23-year-old had already gotten a job offer as an aluminum smelter and was toying between taking the job or following her brother to Africa to do missionary work. Yeah, these women are really accomplished. Maurice Lajeunere was a 25-year-old budget clerk for Polytechnique. She met the love of her life, Jean-Francois Larve, in the office, and the two had gotten married in August of 1989. They'd been hoping to start a family, and Jean believed Maurice was actually newly pregnant on this fateful evening. Barbara Kluznik Vidayevich and her husband had fled Poland in 1986, looking for a safer place to live and decided on Canada. That's the unfortunate irony here. Barbara spoke five languages, was a whiz at everything from engineering, economics, and food logistics, and had just started her first year at Montreal's nursing school. She and her husband had gone to the cafeteria at Polytechnique for a cheap dinner when Lapine opened fire, shooting Barbara in the head. Genevieve Bergeron was 21 years old and a civil engineering major. When graduating from high school, she wasn't sure if she wanted to major in music or science, as she was great at both, but she won a scholarship to Polytechnique, and the decision seemed clear. Once at the school, she became best friends with Anne-Marie Edward, a 21-year-old chemical engineering major who had a penchant for extreme sports. She was an avid skier and was known among her classmates to be very clever. Lapine killed them both as they pled with him to spare their lives. Maurice LeClaire was in her fourth year of her engineering degree, and the 23-year-old had recently started dating a young man. They had plans to travel together after graduation. Maurice's father was a lieutenant with the Montreal Police Department, and Amy, he was one of the first investigators on the scene. And when he went into the first floor classroom, the first thing he saw was his daughter lying dead behind the podium. That's every parent's worst nightmare. I think and then some, right? Uh, yeah, Not that's... only does your child die, but then you have to see this brutal violence. Well, I would also imagine responding to that call, knowing that your child goes to that school. You think, I hope, but there's no way that could be my child. And it's, yeah, it's your worst fears realized. I think so, too. 
Maud Havernick was 29 and had previously worked in interior and environmental design. She decided to go back to school at Polytechnique to get a master's in materials engineering. She was waiting to give her final presentation in the class when Lapine fired on her as she and her classmate, Michelle, tried to escape. Michelle Richard was 21 years old and went by the nickname Mimi. She was in her second year of her material engineering degree, and she and her boyfriend, Stephen, were planning on getting engaged in the spring of 1990 after dating for four years. He stayed in the classroom, Amy, after Lapine ordered all the men out and watched his girlfriend die at Lapine's hands. Megan, these stories are just, each one gets worse and worse. Unfortunately, they really do. And lastly, 21-year-old Annie Turcotte had chosen Polytechnique due to her brother's good experiences there just a few years before. She was a brilliant scientist, winning a Women in Science bursary, and she was an excellent student. But more importantly, Annie was a giving person, spending her summers providing free swimming lessons to disabled children, as well as offering these lessons to any child who needed them throughout the year. Her professors commented that she was ahead of her time in her work on metallurgical engineering and finding ways to protect the environment. She was the last woman Lapine fatally shot before turning the rifle on himself. First of all, I appreciate you highlighting all the victims because I think all too often we spend too much time talking about the offender and not enough time on the victim. So thank you very much for doing that. But it also just shows how much was lost that day and the potential. The incredible people. These were women that probably would have changed the world. It's devastating. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Now that we know everything about the victims in the attack, I want to turn to what the response was. As I mentioned, the media's original stories downplayed the gender-specific nature of such an unfathomable attack, skewing the narrative to portray Lapine as a deranged madman. The 14 women he killed had, quote, been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And very little was mentioned about these victims at all. One of the premier journalists of the original media coverage, Shelley Page, revisited several of her articles covering the atrocity on the 25th anniversary. Now, this was in 2014. And she had this to say, quote, my stories were restrained, diligent and cautious. I should have referred to the buildings they wouldn't design, the machines they wouldn't create and the products never imagined. They weren't killed for being daughters or girlfriends, but because they were capable women in a male-dominated field. I should have written that then. But whatever the media storm, 14 women's families were beside themselves with grief, unable to comprehend how something like this could have happened in their city. How could this have happened on this campus? When the campus's chief security officers interviewed, he explained that not only were there 45,000 students on the campus and it was impossible to screen every student who came in and out, but that the campus's large footprint made it very difficult to patrol. And in 1989, we're talking about a time before surveillance cameras were popular or really even in use. So really, the patrol would be officers walking the beat. Also, up until this point, Amy, the campus had experienced very little crime. Now, I'm sure this didn't do much to assuage the grief, but the massacre had unintended and long-lasting consequences that would shatter everything Mark Lapine had hoped to accomplish with his violence. And what was the response? What was accomplished? Clearly, it wasn't, it didn't do what Mark had hoped it would do. But please tell me there was some positive changes after this horrific event. I think so. It's a good question. Quebecian women's movements were galvanized by this atrocity. And in response to their efforts, the government created a House of Commons subcommittee on the status of women followed by a Canadian panel on violence against women in 1991. And while their final reports didn't make much of an impact, they still kept the conversation going about violence against women faced at the hands of men like Mark Lapine. This led to an abundance of new research on family violence and violence against women. And in 1996, the government adopted an intervention policy that would focus on detecting, preventing, and ending domestic violence. Now, the massacre also led the slain women's families to build campaigns for gun control, 
spawning the Canadian government to revisit its current gun laws. What happened was the Coalition for Gun Control was created, which stipulated new licensing for firearms owners, national weapon registries, background checks, verification processes, and a control on ammunition sales. It was a huge win for the victims' families. And although it was abolished in the early 2000s due to governmental election changes, as of 2018, it was reinstated. Okay. Emergency services were also heavily criticized after the event because they didn't arrive till 15 minutes into the attack. Due to the communications breakdown at the dispatch center and misinformation, get this, on the correct address of the building. Oh, wow. That must be so hard for the families to hear. Yeah, and what happened was law enforcement was so disorganized. And while they surrounded the building, at first they were at the wrong building, and then they waited too long to enter and apprehend the suspect, as there weren't any protocols on the books for an active shooter scenario. Three official investigations were launched to figure out how to fix this issue. And just so you know, several changes were later made to emergency response protocols, which led to much more successful outcomes at the shooting at Concordia University in 1991, the Dawson College shooting of 2006, and an attack on Parliament Hill in 2014. I wasn't aware that mass shootings were also so prevalent in Canada. I wasn't as well, and that's why I was happy to cover this case, because I learned a lot. Lastly, in 1991, the Canadian Parliament declared December 6th as National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. It later became known as White Ribbon Day, and memorials and ceremonies are still performed for the 14 women who lost their lives that day. Okay, beyond the policy changes, there are many memorials and legacies in honor of these women as well. Not far from the university, a memorial park was created to honor the victims with an art installation. In 2019, an updated plaque was installed at the memorial to reflect the anti-feminist nature of the massacre. Another memorial was erected in Vancouver dedicated to all the women murdered by men. In 2013, a new science building at the John Abbott College was built and named in honor of Anne Marie Edward, as she had attended that school before going on to Polytechnique. In 2014, a national scholarship fund called the Order of the White Rose was established to give out annual scholarships to female engineering students. And after the 25th anniversary of the massacre, 14 searchlights are lit at the summit of Mount Royal, which is the mountain range bordering Montreal, at 5.10 p.m. on December 6th to represent the 14 young women who were slain. There's a picture of it online, and I have to tell you, it is very moving. Now, Amy, while researching this episode, one of the things I found most interesting was how many articles were written about the Montreal massacre in the last Five years. Why is that? I think it was because uh, in a time of wanting to bring attention to the misogyny that spawned Mark Lapine to brutally murder these 14 strangers simply because he hated women. Mm -hmm. I think it's timely, this issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the takeaway of this episode is that these 14 women were killed needlessly and that the world was deprived of their, as you said, their talents, their intellect and their contributions. And this was because of gender-based hate. The media played that down in the initial reports. Um, But I'm glad to see. I think what's interesting now is that the narrative is being reevaluated. Again, it was like in a time where it was people had to reflect on the way they told the story. And it's a very different time Mm -hmm. now. And so I think they were able to look back and recognize the gender-based violence that was, you know, really um, intended here. And the fact that they didn't pay attention to the victims. It's nice to see how many policy changes came out of this horrific event and memorials. And, you know, this is one of those stories where there are there's a lot of good that came out of it. It certainly was. And I think it was discussed differently then than it is now. But there's a bigger question here. And I guess that that question is, have we really moved on? Statistically, as of 2021, every six days, a Canadian woman is killed by her domestic partner. Gender-based violence is still happening, and even if, particularly in Canada, legislation has changed to provide female people legal protection, it certainly hasn't seemed to slow the violence. I think the positive here is that there's more discussion, but the fact is it hasn't slowed down the violence enough. 
I want to end on a positive note, a more hopeful note for this episode. Mark Lapine sought to end women's roles in engineering. But guess what? More women than ever are enrolling in Polytechnique, even a few years after the massacre, proving that nothing can really keep women from succeeding where they desire to go. All right. If you'd like to know more about the Polytechnique massacre or you're interested in what happened to the survivors or Mark Lapine's family, there's a few resources I'd recommend. Canadian True Crime Podcast episodes 28 and 29 provide a great deep dive into this. Aftermath, a memoir by Mark Lapine's mother, Monique, gives a unique Mm. perspective on being on the opposite side of this event. And Polytechnique, the 2009 feature film. All right. I know today was a, a long episode and a lot, but an important one. Thank you, Megan. This was so eye-opening and it's so refreshing to see the move made in the right direction, even after such a horrible tragedy. I would have to agree. I'm glad that we were able to find some real positives from this tragedy. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network, That not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campuskillings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.